Welcome, and uh, I want to welcome everybody in our listening audience, even those who will be listening to us on the radio and, and on the internet, and to the guys that are here in the room. Uh, we're so pleased that you're joining us with today. And we are continuing our study about evangelism through Jesus. How did Jesus evangelize? What can we learn when we see how Jesus approaches those that are unsaved? And today we're going to study one of the most famous pictures in the Bible as Jesus will come face to face with Nicodemus. Uh, And this is an amazing story because uh, Nicodemus is a devout Jew. Nicodemus is a Pharisee. Nicodemus is a member of the religious elite. Uh, he, He is a recognized holy person, an important person in Israel. And yet, Nicodemus recognizes that there's something special and different about Jesus. And so Nicodemus will come to Jesus at night because he cannot come during the day uh, because of his position. And so he will come at night to visit Jesus. And Jesus will make some of the most amazing statements you will ever see any place in the Bible. Can you imagine speaking to somebody who believes they are religiously devout, a member of a recognized denomination, a churchgoer, a church leader, and saying to that person, you need to be saved. Can you imagine that? Uh, And so it's so incredible as we see how Jesus does this and the lessons that we learn about that. So let's start by reading John chapter 3, beginning with verse 1. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the miraculous signs you are doing if God were not with him. Verse 3, in reply, Jesus declared, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. I just want to stop there because you get an insight into the character of Jesus, all right? Here he comes to Jesus, and he says, you're great, you're holy, you're doing all these miracles, you are a great man, you are really being used. And, you know, you would put yourself in that position if somebody said to me, oh, John, you know, you're doing a lot of good things. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Keep talking, all right? Keep talking. But Jesus cuts it short. Jesus doesn't want to hear this stuff. He's not interested in those platitudes by man. Immediately, Jesus drops the bomb. He drops the bomb. I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. Now, I want you to understand something. That phrase there, unless he is born again, that's the first time you will see that uttered by anybody in Scripture, being born again. It is a phrase that Jesus uses, and that if you were a Jew in the first century setting, you would not know what that phrase means. Uh, And so we're going to speak about that. Continuing on, verse 4. How can a man be born when he is old? Nicodemus asked. Surely he cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered. I tell you the truth, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and the spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from 
or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. How can this be, Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and do you not understand these things? I tell you the truth. We speak of what we know, and we testify to what we have seen. But still, you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things, and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. You can imagine what uh, Nicodemus' head must have been like after he had this colloquy with, with Jesus. Uh, and it, it, one of the most extraordinary passages uh, in the Bible, because Jesus is meeting with a legitimate holy guy. Here's a guy who's a devout Jew. Here's a guy who's a leader, a teacher, a member of the Sanhedrin, a member of the religious elite. But despite all of that, unless you have given your heart to Jesus Christ, as, unless you have asked really for God to come into your heart and to change your life, you are not saved. Um, and this is what the Jewish people found so hard to get through their heads. Uh, and, and so this becomes a, a glorious study for us as we come to terms with how to speak to people about being born again. When I was a teenager, uh, I have to testify to you that I, I was not pleased with calling myself born again. Uh, and even though I was born again, I was ashamed to use that nomenclature because during that period of time, uh, when you, during the Jesus movement of the 1960s, uh, late 50s, 1960s, a lot of people who would become fanatics, religious fanatics and zealots, refer to themselves as born-again Christian, whether they were or not, who knows, only God does. But what happens, it became really a negative commentary in society. Instead of looking at people whose lives were changed, who exhibited love, what you saw were people who were over the top in terms of emotionalism, and it turned people off. They weren't bringing people to Jesus. They were turning people away. Well, when you understand what Jesus is speaking about here, a change of life, a change in character brought about totally by God, uh, you see it in a totally different way. And so uh, here it is. This man is genuinely, genuinely searching uh, for truth, and he's coming to Jesus to see it. And so as you see it, when someone comes with a pure heart, with an open heart, God will meet them and, and speak to them, as, as that happened here with Nicodemus. Now, uh, we cannot be saved on our own. Let me get that out to you straight, right, right up front, as a theological pretext. You cannot be saved on your own. You cannot decide, you know what, today, from now on, I'm not going to uh, drink anymore, I'm not going to curse anymore, I'm going to lead a holy life, I'm going to be a holy man. In fact, maybe I'll go to India. I might help out in a leper colony. I've got, I'm really going to, from this day forward, John Garippa will be changed forever. And then what happens? The next day, somebody uh, cuts you off in traffic. 
somebody says something mean-spirited to you. Even in church, somebody looks at you the wrong way, and I don't have to tell you what, what goes on, what goes on in your mind, the feelings that you have, the bitterness, the hatred percolates up, because you cannot make yourself a new man. And if we don't get that through our hearts, you will never learn anything. It is only for the grace of God that you are saved. And what this means is, it is this this, uh, scenario in which you come to recognize you are lost, that that you're going nowhere. Uh, You look deep within yourself, and as you go deep within yourself, you find this empty hole. And you recognize that only God can fill that. And so as you come to terms with this, and this is how this works, as you come to recognize and, and, and God gives you the grace to recognize I'm lost, I need a Savior, God gives you the grace to actually make that self-audit, and he then says, gives you the grace to raise your arms up to him and say, Lord, I need salvation. I need you in my life. This is exactly how this happens. And when that happens, and when it happens with a true change of heart, it's not lip conversion. It's not joining a church. It's not recognizing you're part of a denomination. It even is not baptism. All right? Let me disabuse you right up front. This has nothing to do with baptism. This is a one-on-one heart conversion of God saying, you say to God, I need a savior. And at that moment, God reaches across eternity, touches you, fills you with the Holy Spirit. And at that moment, you are saved. You are saved at that moment. Having nothing to do with with anything that you did, nothing to do with any philosophies, having everything to do with the fact that God gave you the grace to recognize that you were lost and now he has given you the Holy Spirit. That's what salvation is. All right? Uh, Let's understand that. Uh, And so I don't care what theology you practice. I don't care what position you hold in your church. I don't care that your great-grandfather founded the church and that your grandfather and father are members of the church or that you've been going to the same church for 50 years. None of that matters in the sight of God. None of it, okay? None of it. What matters in the sight of God is your heart. What's your heart? Have you submitted yourself to God? Have you turned your life over to God? Have you allowed his spirit into your life? Have you allowed him to fill you and to direct you? And as I told you, all of this happens on day one. You're saved. It's day one. And then we get into day two and the rest of our life. And day two in the rest of our life is about following, walking, and sanctification. Every day, following picking up the cross, carrying on as a member of the kingdom of God, advancing the kingdom of God. Now, that's a question of you allowing the spirit to move in you and you having the will to carry what God has given you and to use it for the advancement of the kingdom of God. That's day two to day 10,000. But day one is nothing about you, but is about salvation coming to you totally by the will of God. And this is what Jesus is saying to Nicodemus. 
Yes, Nicodemus, I know you're a good man. I know you're a holy man. I know you're a Pharisee. I know you're a teacher. I know you're a leader, but you need to be saved. Can you imagine being able to say that to somebody who you knew who was putatively religious in some way, and yet God wants us to say this? And we do it in love. We don't do it in a mean way. We do it in love. And so what we understand here, that despite being a devout worshiper and a tender regularly at the temple, he still needed the new life that only God would give us. And so we understand this, that becoming a Christian uh, is far more than simply gaining uh, new knowledge, uh, understanding the will of God. It's more than that. It's about turning your life over completely to God. We need to humble ourselves uh, and to ask God to give us a new life. Respect and honor for Christ are not enough. Listen to what I just said. Respect and honor for Christ are not enough. I can give you a litany of people who give respect and honor to Christ, and it's not enough. You know, the Jehovah Witnesses believe that Jesus was uh, a great teacher, but they believe he was a created being. They don't believe he was the son of God. Only the son of God saves. If you deny the divinity of Jesus, then you're not elevating God to what his position rightly is. Just like Muslims, you know, you read the Quran, you'll see Jesus' name mentioned in the Quran, but it's mentioned in the context of being a great prophet. Let me tell you, folks, Jesus is no prophet. He's the son of God. All right? And unless you acknowledge that, unless you truly acknowledge that, you're not saved. Uh, even those people that get involved in the New Age, you know, you see a lot of New Age religious people. But they don't talk about the cross because they don't believe in the sacrifice of the cross in terms of the New Age uh, spirituality. Uh, in fact, you know, one of the people that, that really uh, symbolizes this is Thomas Jefferson. Now, I admired Thomas Jefferson greatly, all right? But Thomas Jefferson had a Bible in which he cut out all of the references by, to Jesus of being God and all of the miracles. So if you picked up the Jefferson Bible, and my son did, in fact, do that at the Smithsonian Institute because he was a, a rare book dealer before he became a pastor, you pick up this Bible page after page in the New Testament, is cut out. It's cut out. Why? Because Jefferson would not accept the fact that Jesus was the Son of God. All right? So it doesn't matter about your intellect or your brilliance or your position in life. If you don't accept Jesus Christ as the Son of God, God is truly not going to put his spirit in you. You will not have a new life. You can't possibly have a new life. And so this becomes important. Only the acknowledgement of Jesus Christ as God himself uh, will honor the Father. Uh, now, this is a hard teaching to communicate uh, in our times because of the exclusive nature of the claim. And you understand what this is about. You're out with your friends, uh, and you know you want to be considered uh, philosophically and intellectually interesting you want to show them that you're not biased, that, you're, that you look at people with an openness of heart. And you should look at people with an openness of heart. But when it comes to Jesus Christ, you have to bring the curtain down. 
You understand? You have to bring the curtain down. There's no way there's any discussion about Jesus Christ other than exclusivity. None. And here's the thing. You have to learn to do this. You have to learn to do this. Why do I say that? Because I know how you are. I know how I was. For years, I refrained. I didn't want to insult people. I didn't want to do it. But now, even to my Jewish friends, even to my Jewish friends, I, 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 I make it very clear when the time comes. I don't ram it down their throats. I wait for opportunities. But when God presents an opportunity, you have to step through the door. All right? I want you to understand this. This is about being prepared for those opportunities. That's why I'm teaching this to you, so that you're prepared, so that you can make this analysis. We have to emphasize the exclusivity of Jesus Christ. John 14, 6. That's the verse I preach at every funeral I ever do. Every funeral. No one, said Jesus, no one, underline it, no one comes to the Father except through me, period, end of sentence. Jesus plus nothing else is salvation, period, all right? Now, don't sit there and say to me, oh, John, how can you say all these other people are going to hell? How can you say it? That's not my words. I'm not writing the Bible. You're not writing the Bible. All you are is repeating the words of Christ himself, you want to find out how to get to heaven? How about using the roadmap that God gave you? All right? You want the GPS? It's here. Simple as that. You want the GPS? It's here. Don't go inventing your own map. Because when you invent your own map, at the end of the day, you're absolutely lost. And this is what we see in the world. So many people have invented their own maps, invented their own religion. All right? And then what happens? They enter hard times. They go through difficult times. And then, and then what happens? They don't really have the true faith in their heart. God wants to give you God himself, his spirit in your heart that you have forever and ever. And so this becomes an important aspect of understanding this. Uh, and so being able to speak to people in a way so that they, that they understand exactly what we're looking at. Now, Continuing on in, in our outline. Now, why does Jesus use this new form of expression? Why does Jesus use this? You must be born again in order to see the kingdom of God. Uh, it is obvious from Nicodemus' reply that he doesn't understand the words. Why does Jesus use this new form of expression? Well, Jesus is trying to tell Nicodemus that entrance into God's kingdom cannot be had simply because you were born as an Israelite, okay? Or born as a Baptist, or a Presbyterian, or a Catholic. None of that. I don't care what it says on your passport. None of that is going to get you into heaven, into the kingdom of God. None of that. And you have to understand if you were a Jew in the first century, this was impossible to understand. We are the chosen people. We come from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God has brought us out of Egypt. We are the chosen people. We had manna. We have the pillar of fire, the cloud at night, constantly with us, God with us in every way, the Ark of the Covenant. Yes, all that is true. But God prepared you for a substitutionary sacrifice once and for all time 
somewhere around 30 AD with his son, Jesus Christ. And if you didn't accept that substitutionary sacrifice once and for all, then everything else was for naught. Naught. Imagine being a Jew coming out of that background. And so here it is. What this is, effectively, Jesus is saying that in order to have entrance into the kingdom of God, you had to have a radical change, a radical new life. So radical that it requires for you to effectively be born again. Meaning what? The way you were born before was a flesh. Now you're going to be born through the spirit. God is going to rebirth you, recreate you, make you a new person through the Holy Spirit. And that's what this is about. That's what this is all referencing. So Jesus is trying to tell Nicodemus, look, we cannot make your own way. It doesn't matter how many times you go to temple or how much money you give away or the good works that you think you have. You have to understand, God looks at these things and he doesn't see holiness. He doesn't see righteousness. Our acts of righteousness are viewed by God as filthy rags. That's what the scripture says. What does that mean? It means this. Even the most righteous person without God, when we do these acts of generosity and charity, how many of us say, uh, and make sure my name gets mentioned? You know, I'm going to give a lot of money, but I'd like to see my name on the hospital, or I want to see it on the building. You understand? Uh, Yes, I want to advance I want to do some charitable works, but it would be good also if you acknowledge me. What do you think? Do you think that's righteousness in the sight of God? Righteousness in the sight of God is putting your face in the dirt and saying everything I have, everything that I am, everything that I will be used of, everything I will become is because of you. You direct my paths. You lead me. And when you do this, God elevates you more and more and more. And so you recognize this. And so Jesus is challenging Nicodemus to the teaching of new birth by the Spirit of God in a very simple, basic, biblical teaching. Now, interestingly, Jesus says that there is only one person in this passage, only one person who has truly come uh, from uh, heaven. That is the Son of Man. And that is referred to in Daniel chapter 7. Why don't we turn there, if you would? Daniel chapter 7. Verse 13, this is the first time this nomenclature will be used. And Jesus will then use this name himself 81 times. Jesus will refer to himself as the Son of Man 81 times. And here's where it comes out of, verse 13, chapter 7 of Daniel. In my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was one like a Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. And the congregation said, Amen. Amen is right. You want to see who Jesus is? You want to see the prophecy relating to Jesus? It's right there, okay? Right there. Here it is. Now, 600 years B.C., 600 years B.C., and Jesus will authenticate Daniel, will refer to him 
often and will use this very nomenclature referring to himself as the Son of Man. And so this becomes critical for us to understand this uh, and, and important for you to understand this. I want you to understand how God views our position when we are not sold out to him, when we are not born again. And I want you to understand this because here he is, he's speaking to a Jew, okay? It's a, a child of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They, you know, they have the Bible. Now, the question that some of you may say, well, if you were a devout Jew and really gave your heart up to God and, and, and your heart was changed, would you be saved? Yes, you would be saved at that time if you did that, if you lived under the precepts of God uh, up to that time. But you have to understand something. The curtain comes down. And so for 1,400 years, there's substitutionary sacrifice by animals. But once Jesus comes, there's no substitutionary sacrifice by animals. There's a substitutionary sacrifice once and for all time by the Son of God. Amen? Amen. Understand that. Once and for all. And that is why now Jesus can speak like this to the Jewish nation, telling them. And I want you to understand how God looks at us when, in fact, we are not saved, how he views us. Revelation chapter 3, turn to it. This is one of the seven churches in Asia, all right? This was a church that at one time was being used in a mighty way, all right? I want you to see what Jesus says. Uh, this is the Lord's words spoken prophetically to John in a, in a vision. Verse 14, Revelation chapter 3, verse 14, to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, these are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither cold nor neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. Wow. Because I'm neither hot nor cold? It doesn't say I'm bad. It doesn't say that, I, that I'm a reprobate. I'm just neither hot nor cold. I'm lukewarm. And so you see what God is saying to those of us churchgoers, people who think that they are right with God, think that they're walking with God, if you're not hot for God, if you're not on fire for God, God effectively is looking at you as lukewarm, and in God's parlance, he wants to spit you out of his mouth. You say, verse 17, I am rich, I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing, but you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you can become rich and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. None of this relates to material issues. He's not saying that you're poor materially. He's not saying that you don't have an affluence of wealth. He's saying that you have a poverty of spirit. 
that God's spirit is not being displayed in your life, that you're not advancing the kingdom of God. You are lukewarm, and that's how God views it. That's why you need salvation. And effectively, that was the mindset you see here. That was the mindset of what uh, Jesus effectively is telling Nicodemus. Yes, you're there. Yes, you attend uh, synagogue. Yes, you attend services. Yes, you're a Pharisee. But as far as God's concerned, you're nothing more than being lukewarm. You haven't turned God into your heart. You haven't effectively developed a new life. Uh, And so it's important to understand this, that when he speaks of a new birth, it's as if he says you need to have a new origin. You're no longer of flesh. You're no longer the son of Adam. Now you are the son of Jesus Christ. You're the son of God because you have adopted the kingdom of God, because you have placed uh, the Holy Spirit uh, in your heart. And so what he is saying here is that the Israelite is not by nature capable of the kingdom of God. Not by nature capable of the kingdom of God. This should be a warning to us, really. This should be a warning to us as we go through our lives and and we generally, you know, attend church service and go to church service and go through what I call the rhythm of the day. You understand what that is, meaning you get up, you get dressed, maybe you go to Sunday school, then you go to church, then you go out for pancakes. And the best part of the day is the pancakes. Okay? Because if I were there with you at the end of church and I said, how was church? Oh, it was good. Yeah. What did you preach on? Uh, I don't know, but it was good. It was good. And this is what happens. This is the rhythm of your life. You're not coming to terms with the seriousness of what God wants from you. And this isn't just us. It's all over the world. And God is speaking to us today about the nature of being born again, about having a new origin and understand this. Uh, And so uh, Jesus tells us, Jesus is speaking here, that you must be born of water and the Spirit. Uh, And here Jesus terms it as one faith, one baptism, and he's going to speak about that. I want you to turn to Matthew 28 as we drill down on this. Matthew 28. Because there's no subject more important than this. And by the way, after, after this session is over, if any of you want me to pray with you, if you have any issues about this in your own life, we can close it down today. I will stay here and do that as long as is necessary. I want you to understand that. I want to make that offer to you, that today is the day. Today is the day that the Lord has provided. Matthew 28, verse 18. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And there you understand the nature of God's command to us, how we are supposed to go forward, how we are supposed to bring these teachings to the world that is lost. That's what God expects you to do, every single one of you. Turn to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, verse 38. Peter replied, repent and be baptized. And he's speaking to Jews now. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. Repent, repent. And be baptized. 
And in my position with that is that's not necessarily water baptism. It's the repenting and the effectively the washing of water by the Spirit of God. As you repent, it is the Spirit of God that washes your sins away. It is the blood of Jesus Christ that washes your, blood, your sins away. And as that exercise takes place, and as you truly repent, he fills you with the Holy Spirit. Amen? At that moment, you have the Holy Spirit. Now, here's the key. This is what gives you a new life. All right? It's not the uttering of the words. It's not the pledge to God. It is the commitment in your heart to give God your life, and he covenants with you by planting the Holy Spirit in your heart. Effectively, he's giving you a piece of Jesus in your heart. And that will stay with you forever. Because once you are saved, God holds you in his hands like this. And nothing, no power, no principality, no demon can take you out of the hand of God. Nothing. I don't care what you go through. I don't care what you come across. Nothing will take you out of the hand of God. All right? That's what salvation means. That's the nature of salvation. Now, I understand all of us as we go through life, we have, we're like a pail with holes in us. And so some of this will drift out. Some of this will spill away. And that's why we get to day two. Right? Day two. The walking, the carrying of the cross, the ongoing sanctification, the request to humble ourselves. Lord, humble me, wash me, make me more like you. That's what takes place from year two to year 10,000. That's what takes place. But understand this exercise, that what it means in every possible way. Turn also to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13. We'll start with verse 12. The body is a unit, though it is made up of many parts, and though all its parts are many, they form one body. So it is with Christ. For we were all baptized by one spirit into one body, whether Jew or Greek, slave or free, and we were all given the one spirit to drink. Amen? One spirit from God. It doesn't matter if you're a Gentile or a Jew, or if you're a Roman, or a Greek. One spirit, and in that one spirit, given by God himself to you, washing you with the blood of Jesus Christ, effectively that washing is the one baptism. We are baptized through the Holy Spirit, confirming the gift of salvation. What a great passage this is. Uh, as you begin to understand how mighty the hand of God is in so many ways, so many ways. I thank God. I thank God every day for that gift, understanding what he has done for us. And so now Jesus begins to drill down with Nicodemus, even as he's beginning to speak in depth about what salvation is and what the substitutionary sacrifice is about. He tells Nicodemus that this son of man that Daniel referred to, that is, Jesus himself, must be lifted up just like the serpent in the wilderness. Now, Jesus is referring to the account in the book of Numbers where the Israelites, judged with death for their unbelief and rebellion, are saved by looking at the image of a bronze 
serpent on a pole. I want you to turn to that because this is important for you to understand. Numbers chapter 21. This is why there is one Bible. Look at how I've already woven together the idea in Daniel that the Son of Man is Jesus Christ. And look at now how the book of Numbers, right, the first five books of Moses, now you're going to see again a, 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 what we will call a prophetic typology of Christ to come. Here it is, 1,400 years before, and yet you're going to see the image of Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. Numbers 21, verse 4. They traveled from Mount Hor along the route to the Red Sea to go around Edom. But the people grew impatient on the way. They spoke against God and against Moses and said, Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the desert? There is no bread, there is no water, and we detest the miserable food. Thank you very much. I've only brought you out of the brick pits of Egypt. I've saved your lives. You were being beaten and whipped. God has taken you from the muck and mire of Egypt and brought you. He opened up the Red Sea, and you're complaining about the quality of the food. If you want to know, as I've said this before, what kind of man Moses was and what it was like to lead these people, I want to give you an image because you can't understand it. He's leading three million recalcitrant Jews. What is it like to lead three million recalcitrant Jews? Imagine if it were that you were going to lead the island of Manhattan. Three million Manhattanites. Do I have to say anything else? Okay, you understand? Each one of them knows better than anybody else. They haven't humbled themselves, all right? And that's why what will take place here is over 40 years, anybody over the age of 21 will die and not be allowed to get into the promised land. No one, not one person over the age of 21, except Joshua and Caleb. That's it. You think God doesn't fool around? All right? He's trying to give you a chance, trying to teach you in every way. And so just look at, look at this word, the, the food. We detest this miserable food. Then God sent venomous snakes among them. And here's the point. You see how God, he has patience for a while. He'll put up with your nonsense for a while. But there always is a day of judgment. You don't get out of jail free. All right? There is a judgment. He loves you, but he wants to teach you. He wants you to come to salvation. He wants you to come to humility. And some of us will never, never lower ourselves and never humble ourselves. And you see this here uh, with, the, with the Jewish people. And so he sends venomous snakes among them. They bit the people, and many Israelites died. The people came to Moses and said, we sinned. Oh, when did you figure that out? We sin when we spoke against the Lord and against you. Pray, pray that the Lord will take the snakes away from us. So Moses prayed for the people. That's, that's the kind of man you want to be. You see, the person of intervention. Even for those people who don't know God, when they come to you and ask you to pray, you pray for them because God is using you to make intervention. The Lord said to Moses, make a snake and put it up on a pole. Anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. So Moses made a bronze snake and put it up on a pole. Then when anyone was bitten by a snake and looked at the bronze snake, he lived. 
Now, Jesus is now referring to this as what will happen to him when he will be put on a cross and lifted up and sacrificed. Isn't this extraordinary? How God has woven 1,400 years of history. He gives you the typology. This is what is to become. This is what the true sacrifice is. Yes, something as hideous as a snake on a pole will save you. Any more hideous than looking at at the corpse of a human body, desecrated through crucifixion, broken through crucifixion, yet looking at that body and recognize that the Son of God is hanging on that cross. And it's through the Son of God that you will be saved, just like that snake saved you 1,400 years before. What a powerful picture this is, as God is now speaking to a Jew about his own Bible. You understand how God does it? How we evangelize us? I speak to you in a language that you can understand. It's your Bible. It's your Moses. These are your people. And God does that, and he understands that. And so here he is. He speaks about his coming death and talking about the specific faith necessary to enter into the eternal kingdom of God. Nicodemus hears a lot more than he ever expected when he ventures on this secret visit. A lot more. We can imagine him afterwards searching the scriptures for what Jesus calls this elementary doctrine of the new birth. Uh, We know that he became a believer uh, in Jesus later. We know that because Nicodemus will show up at the cross. He will show up with Joseph of Arimathea. They will take down the body of Christ from the cross. They will wrap up the body of Jesus in spices. They will put that body of Jesus in the, in the crypt of Joseph of Arimathea. And I submit to you folks that no one who would have been a Pharisee, no one who would have been highly uh, elevated in Israel would put themselves in a position like that with Jesus unless in fact he had truly been changed. I believe that Nicodemus was born again. That this message that Jesus had percolated in his heart over the coming months that Jesus spoke to him about. And so I think you see that in the evidence of his life. And that's what you see. You see the fruit of the Spirit. You don't have to tell somebody you're born again. You don't have to go around with a button that says that. Why do I say that? Because here it is. Your life has changed. It's no more about you. Now you can't wait to get to church. You can't wait to worship God. You can't wait to bow down. You can't wait to be the hands and feet of Jesus. Not because you're elevating John or Bob, but because you're elevating Jesus. And that's why you're in St. Matthew's house on Monday or Tuesday. Or you're in another homeless shelter Wednesday and Thursday. And then you're at working at Helps Outreach or helping the myriad ministries that we have in this, in this group. In so many ways, reaching out to a world that's lost. You're doing it not because you're advancing yourself, not because you're making yourself look better in the eyes of God. It's because you love Christ. You love God. You will do anything for him, anything to advance the kingdom of God. That is truly being born again. That's what it is. You don't have to wear it on your shoulder or wear a badge. This is what drove me nuts as a kid. And I understood it even though I was was just a young Christian. It was not that essence of wearing that badge. It was the heart that's that's then brought to the the, uh, flesh by being a servant of God, bowing as a servant of God, doing what God ordains you to do. 
And, and if, if, uh, if Nicodemus went back in the scriptures, as I believe Nicodemus did, as Jesus told him to do, and we don't have all the verses, but I would commend you to Psalm 51, because I believe that that's probably one of the verses, one of the, one of the places that, that Nicodemus looked. Look at Psalm 51. And you know this is the psalm in which David begs for repentance before God. Begs for repentance uh, because of the sin with Bathsheba. And he recognizes that he needs effectively to be washed. And look at the words in this psalm. Psalm 51, verse 1. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion. Blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Whoa, David, where are you getting this from? You understand? Where are you getting this from? This is directly from God understanding that I was born a sinful man, that I've sinned against you. Well, wait a minute now, David. Now, wait a second. You didn't really sin against God. Uh, you, had, you had an adulterous relationship. Yes, it's God. All right? It's God. Yes, I may have broken the hearts of people in my family. Yes, I may have done things outside of what I should have done, but it was God that I sinned against, and that's what this is about, the recognition that all of your sin is against God. I can't drill this down to you enough. All of your sin is against God, and David recognized it, and look at the language here. Wash me. Blot out my transgressions. Why do you think he said, blot out my transgressions? Because day after day after day, he must have just dwelled on it. Oh, God, I was awful. How could I have done this? How could I do this sin? And it is only when you come to Jesus and ask for forgiveness that Jesus washes away the sin so that the sin no longer exists. It's as far as the east is from the west. Amen? This is critical because all of us have fallen. All of us have done things that are shameful. But when we come to Christ, when we become born again, he washes us. Now, here's the thing. You don't just get washed one time, okay? Don't just say, that's it. Oh, yeah, I remember the day I was saved. June 3rd, 1963. That was it. What have you done since then? Man, I've been kind of busy. Yeah, you've been busy. Have you ever gotten on your knees and asked God to rewash you, to re-sanctify you? Have you done? Guys, listen to this. Every day of your life, you need to do this. Don't let a day go by. Don't let a day go by that you don't ask for that continual washing. All right? Don't rest contented in the fact, oh, I was saved 30 years ago. God has so much more for you in the kingdom of God. He wants to elevate you and use you. And you look at this great psalm, and you see this here in verse 6. Surely you desire truth in the inner parts. You teach me wisdom in the inmost place. And then in verse 10, create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Look at the language there of renewal, of new birth, all right, of recreation. You understand 
God is speaking here. It's a thousand years before Jesus Christ would be born. And yes, all the elements of salvation are here in this psalm. All right? That's what Jesus is saying to Nicodemus. This is what you need. Go back and look, and look at the uh, scriptures. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. What a powerful set of verses. As you understand exactly how God is speaking, even then to David, about the issue of renewal, about rewashing, about resanctification, about coming to God with a broken spirit. This is the nature of being born again. All right? And so here's the deal, folks. It's not about some special music that comes out. It's not about you being in a church someplace and being so moved that all of a sudden you're just lifted up and maybe emotionally brought forward in some way and you decide you're going to make some public uh, pronouncement of who it is. None of that matters. None of that matters. It's what takes place in the innermost part of your life. Have you really come to God and say, God, forgive me. God, wash me. God, make me a new man. God, use me every day of my life for whatever you give me. God, let me be your servant. And when you say that and you mean it, he takes you and he holds you in his hand. And nothing, no one, no power, no demon, neither height nor depth, no sickness, nothing will ever take you out of the hand of God. And the congregation said, Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for these words. I thank you for this message of salvation. I thank you for Jesus, Lord, and I thank you for the example of Nicodemus that you have brought forward to us today in a way that resonates in our heart. Let us contemplate this passage. Let us reflect on what it means. Let us get closer to you, God, in every step of our life, every breath that we take. Help us, Father, to recognize who we are and our continuing need for washing and sanctification. Be with our men. Protect them this week and bring them back safely next week to continue the study of your word. We put all of this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. God bless you.